I want to invite you guys to take your Bibles and turn over to Psalm 107 for the next little bit of our time together this morning. That's where we're going to be, walking verse by verse through a psalm that I'm guessing is not going to be super familiar to a lot of you. It wasn't to me before I spent time getting ready for this series and for this sermon in particular. So I'd read it before, of course, but it hadn't stuck with me uh, until much more recently. And I hope you're going to find today what I've found in studying this psalm. It is a remarkable and powerful reminder to us of God's power to take, uh, to take broken, seemingly hopeless situations and transform them into theaters where he plays out his power and righteousness and grace in the lives of people who look to him. That's really what this psalm is about. It's in a section of psalms, the last section of the whole collection, that's mostly about redemption, mostly about praising God and thanking Him for what He did in Israel's life and experience to change their story from one defined by sin and rebellion and sadness into one defined by uh, by His love for them and their enjoyment of His grace in the place that He made for them and brought them to. This one's a psalm that looks back to the time when Israel was, was lost in exile. It pulls from a history that was very sad for them, a time when instead of, instead of resting in the land that God had given them and instead of enjoying the rule of a king that God had put over them, they had been scattered to the winds. They had been conquered by peoples who lived outside of their land who came in and took it over and then shipped Israel's people Back to, back to these neighboring countries, away from the land that had been theirs, the land that had belonged to their forefathers. It was a, a, a period of homelessness and wandering and, and, and lostness for Israel. A period in which they saw for themselves the results of their decision to trust the gods of other nations instead of their own. This psalm looks back at exile and to their crying out to God and to the grace they experienced when God brought them home. Or as the psalm here puts it, when God decided to gather them in from the east and the west, from the north and the south, from as far as they had been scattered, and to give them a home. One of the things that we noticed recently, the sections of psalms that we've looked at up to this one are filled with what are called lament psalms. Psalms that complain to God about how, how hard life is for one reason or another. Some of them complain about the psalmist himself and his sin, the fact that he can't seem to shake it. Some of them complain about enemies and how strong they are despite how unrighteous and wicked they are. They're still so strong and powerful and they keep, they keep beating the righteous up and that doesn't make sense. And so there's complaint psalms about that. Some are complaint psalms about God who seems distant and, and, and silent. This psalm is like the sequel to a lament psalm. This is a thanksgiving psalm. Thanksgiving psalms start with, I was here, and now by God's grace, I'm here. Thanksgiving psalms are a follow-up to a time when Israel cried out to God for help and, and, and received it, received exactly what they asked for. What I want you to notice, this is a longer one. We're not going to read the whole thing together at the top. What I want you to notice about this psalm, one of the things that, that makes it stick out in my mind, one of the things I appreciate about it is that it gives you four different accounts of people who were in despair, called out to God, and found deliverance. Now, what I've read this week, and most people seem to believe that, there, that the, the four different accounts we're going to unpack together this morning are not four different sets of people who experience God's goodness at different times in different ways in different places, but rather four different ways of conceiving Israel on the whole 
in the time of their exile. Four different ways of describing what it felt like to be them in Babylon or Assyria. And four different ways of describing the same deliverance that they all experienced when God heard their cries and brought them back home. The reason that this psalm is in this collection for me and you to read so many thousands of years later is that what Israel experienced wasn't just about Israel. That what they experienced was setting a pattern for us for what we could expect from God if we called out to Him too. So there's a, there's a reason that, that the, the, the portraits we're going to unpack today don't tie back to any specific thing that the Bible tells us happened to Israel. I don't think they're meant to. They're not meant to tell us about some historical occurrence. They're meant to tell us, here's what it's like to be in despair, and here's what happens when you call out to God so that you can apply it directly to your life. Hopefully, you're going to see yourself, some of your experience in at least one of these four different angles on, on desperate circumstances, and then you'll see yourself we pray in, in the promise that God hears those who cry out to him. So what I want to do this morning is just blow through them one at a time, each one of these accounts, to give you a better sense of what the, what the author is saying so that you can hopefully see yourself in it, and then we can look together to, to the hope that comes in Christ. I want to begin by reading the introduction to this psalm, just the first several verses. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now in honor of God's word while I do that, and then we'll read through each of the accounts together as we move through the psalm. This is This is God's word to you this morning from Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. This is God's word. You can be seated. These three verses set us up for what comes next. They celebrate in kind of a summary fashion. They celebrate the stories of the redeemed who cried out to God and found him to be there when they needed him. Those who were gathered in from the places they'd been scattered to. Four descriptions of despair. Four identical cries to God. And four descriptions of how God delivers people who call out to him. That's what comes next. I want to walk you through them one by one. Beginning with the first one in verse 4 to 9. Here we see hope for the wandering. That's the first image that our our psalm gives us for, for, uh, for Israel in exile. And for us in the lives that we're living now. I want you I want to read through this. Some wandered in the desert wastes, our psalmist writes, finding no way to a city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. First example is the example of the wanderer. And wandering in the wilderness was a huge part of how Israel thought about themselves and their their history. One of the ways people's get a sense of identity for themselves as a group is to tell stories about their past, to pull things that they've experienced and to remind each other of those things. It it helps them to know who they are. The wilderness wandering for Israel was one of those stories. The wilderness theme comes back all through the Old Testament, even gets reintroduced in the New Testament, a time when Israel had no home, when they were living exposed to the powers that be and exposed to the powers of, of, of nature, a place where they had no structures to hide under, where they had no way of knowing where their food would come from except from God's own hand. 
a time when they were rootless and exposed. That, that experience that they had coming out of Egypt and into the promised land, that period in between those, it comes back up in, in a lot of ways as a kind of metaphor for Israel in, in their sin and their despair. I think maybe if you grew up in America, you experienced something like one of these stories in the idea of the frontier and the idea that Americans are people who are always pushing forward into places that have, they haven't been before, looking for opportunities for a new and better life. That's how we're taught about the founding of, of America, of when people fleeing from a lack of opportunity and from tyranny or however you want to tell the story come to a place full of hope and opportunity and promise. It's an idea that plays out in, in the way that the, the West, or the people spread West, the way that the West gets taught in our schools is, is that people hemmed in by a lack of land go West to find a new life better than the one they could have had otherwise. It, it shapes how we, we talk about wagon trains and gold rushes and even wars and what America's wars have been about. And, and whether or not these self-descriptions of our history fit the actual facts in every case, the, the reality is that story is powerful. It's part, of, it's part of a national identity that's taken root for us as Americans. The wilderness was like that for Israel, the part of who they were, how they knew themselves, only where the frontier is usually a positive thing for Americans. It's about opportunity. It's about a better future. The wilderness for Israel was about despair. It was about disorientation. About not knowing who you were or where to go. It was about exposure and danger, not protection. It was a place without life, without food or water. And that's the image that this writer is drawing from to describe what exile was like for them. It's not that they were literally in a desert. I don't think we're meant to see that here. It's that they may as well have been in a desert. They were homeless. They were scattered. They were lost. And they were completely vulnerable to powers that didn't care about them or see them. Powers that only wanted to use them. What they lost was their land. The special place that was the, the goal for so much of their, uh, of their history this place that God had given to them that was theirs, a place where he was in his temple, a place where they knew themselves, they knew who they were in the world, a place that was theirs. That's what had been torn away from them. It felt like wandering in the desert. One of the saddest psalms, maybe the saddest psalm that I know is Psalm 137. It's a psalm written from that time. It opens with these verses. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there our captors required of us songs. And our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign place? Exile for Israel was a desert waste. And there they reached the end of themselves. Verse 6. 
Then they cry to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He cut through their disorientation, not knowing where to go, not knowing what was next. And he led them by a straight way till they reached a city to dwell in. So let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, his wondrous works to the children of man. For he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. You see what this writer is doing here? He's pictured this time in Israel's life as a desert. And he's pictured what it is to be redeemed by God's grace as, as, as a time in which they knew no lack. Every thirst quenched. Every hungry belly filled. And what he's talking about now, by the time you get to verse 9, you can see it's a lot more than just actual historical time when God put food in their mouths. He's talking about hungry souls about thirsty souls. He's now thinking bigger picture and seeing this as just a template for what all people who are hungry, homeless, and lost can find when they cry out to God. They can find a place, a place to belong, familiar and protected, a place to rest, a place to be known and loved, a place to be satisfied with good things. Friends, that's what this psalm is offering to you today. If you feel lost in life, maybe wondering what's good, what's, what's right to aim for, maybe aren't sure where you belong, don't feel like you have a home, you should know that the rest you want, the rootedness you want, the identity you're looking for, that's something you were made to have. Those are good things to want. And what this psalm tells you is that they're available. That the God who gave you those desires is also the God who satisfies them. He loves to quench thirsty souls. And this psalm models for you your one move. Cry out to him from your distress. And give him a chance to satisfy you. It's also a call to those of you who found your home. Have you found your home in God's love and protection? Have you found that he's given your life purpose that you didn't have before? Have you found security in the people that God has put around you? Then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Remember what a privilege it is. How much more important and more fundamental than many other things that you may want but don't have. What a privilege it is to have identity, rootedness in God's love for you and in his calling on your life and in the community that he's put around you. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. There is hope for the wanderer. The next image tells us there's hope for the captive. Another angle on the same truth that you need to hear this morning. The image that comes out of this next set of verses is that of the prisoner. Go with me to verse 10. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. 
I love the way this image complements the first one. If the first one imagines the, dis- the desperate one out in the middle of wide open spaces, alone, exposed, friendless, then this next image takes us into a tight confinement of a small prison cell, hemmed in with no hope of escape, trapped, driven to things that they don't want to do. This pictures Israel in captivity at the will of the people who had brought them to these foreign places, collapsing under the weight of what those people demanded of them, with nobody to help them but the God who put them there to begin with. For what comes out in this image that didn't come out of the image of the the wanderer is that these prisoners deserve their place in prison. They are put here by God. They rebelled against his words. They spurned his counsel. In other words, if we're pulling from Israel's history, they thought they could do better with what seemed right to them than with what God had told them was true and good and right for them. And when God punished them by sending them into exile, what he was giving them was exactly what they had asked for. Israel was always looking over their shoulder at the nations around them to see what they might be getting from their gods and if it was better than what Israel was getting from its God. They were always looking to to maybe upgrade. And so in exile, all God is saying is, you want what your neighbors have? Here you go. It's all yours. It fits Israel's exile experience very well, but you know what? It also fits what the Bible says about how sin works on us. It's what the Bible says about sin in general, that it's kind of like slavery. It's like bondage. It's like being in prison. Romans chapter 1 is a great example of this. You might consider reading that as a follow-up to this psalm. There, Paul writes about how all of us following the desires of our hearts rather than the the words of God to us, run after things God has told us aren't healthy, aren't good, aren't pleasing to Him or good for us. And that one way God judges us for our sin is by giving us up to exactly what we've asked for. Romans 1 uses the same phrase over and over, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. Not that He was frustrated with them, He gave them exactly what they asked for to show them what they had asked for, what it means to get what they were asking for. I've been reading a book with a friend lately about addiction, a book that that talks about addiction as a kind of voluntary slavery. That's the phrase that it uses. And I think that's a great way to talk about sin in general, not just what what a, a, a counselor or clinician might call a, a formal addiction but sin in general works like this what it means is that there's a there is a, a a time where it's voluntary where you're making choices where you're acting on desires that you have for things that you want that you think would be better for you than than what god has said would be good for you but that over time as one choice leads to another what what initially started out as i could go either way here takes on a power of its own that can control you So that no longer are you just making blank slate decisions in each turn. But you're actually, you have the deck stacked against you in your brain, in your body, in your habits. And all these things come at you like a prison that hems you in, that limits your freedom. Sin becomes something not just that you do, but something that has a power to act on you. 
like a disease that you can't control with a power you don't choose to give it anymore. That's the way sin works. And you may feel that way this morning. Like this prisoner. Bowed down with hard labor. Crushed with nobody to help you. If you feel that way this morning, I don't want to minimize what you're dealing with. I don't want to, I'm not going to actually d- deny or push back on the fact that, that this unraveling process you might have in front of you to find freedom will be long and complicated and not something you can do by yourself. But for now, for now, I just want you to hear the message of this psalm. Before you get into what it'll take for you to unravel, for you to break free of those bars, you need to hear the message of verse 13. These prisoners, they cry to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of man. For he shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. What is this promise? These prisoners had one move and one move only left to them. They cried out. And the God who put them where they were, because they deserved it, heard them and delivered I love that the verse 16 puts this in the present tense. He shatters doors of bronze. That's just what he does. He is a God who breaks prisoners free. I love too that Jesus, when he opened his ministry, when he first stood in a synagogue to tell people who he was and what he'd come to do, he read from, in Luke chapter 4, of course, he read from a description in one of the prophets in Isaiah that sounds a whole lot like this psalm. What did he come to do? He read from Isaiah and said that he had come to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He read those verses and he said, this day, right here, right now. So what you need to hear from this psalm, if you feel trapped in a prison you can't escape, is that you are not helpless no matter what you've experienced before, no matter what you feel now, no matter how many times you've thrown your weight against those bars only to get knocked back down, no matter how many times you've come up short, you are not helpless. Cry out to Him. And the amazing message of this psalm, which is backed up throughout all the scriptures, is that God, He loves, He delights to save even those who deserve the trouble that they're in. Has God already delivered you from bondage to sin and addiction? Do you sit here this morning with the hindsight that Israel had? When they celebrated this psalm, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Remember back to when you were trapped and hopeless. Try to remember right now what that felt like for you. And then I want you to know, not imagine as a possibility, but to know as a fact that there are friends sitting near you right now 
in this room this morning who feel what you felt then. And they need to hear the message of this psalm echoed in your life. Praise Him. Thank the Lord for His steadfast love. Let them know about the wondrous works of God for His children. There is hope for the captive. There's hope for the foolish too. Next image starts in verse 17 and it gives us a fool who through poor choices that piled up over time found himself lacking all desire for life, afflicted, sick, preferring death to life. Read verse 17 with me. Some were fools through their sinful ways and because of their iniquity suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food. And they drew near to the gates of death. When the Bible talks about foolishness and wisdom, it's usually talking about something a little different from, from laws that God has given and the breaking of those laws. It's talking about what you need for the whole big swath of life that doesn't come with a handbook. For things, for the parts of life where what you need are good instincts. Or what you need are uh, an instinctive knowledge for how to honor God in a situation that God hasn't scripted for you. So wisdom is about making good choices in those unscripted areas. Foolishness is about making bad choices in those unscripted areas. The key word in this description is a fool. He's imagining someone who has made bad choices, whose trouble or affliction is a trap set by himself. A pit that they dug out and fell into. A web that they wove and then got stuck in. Foolishness in the Bible is the opposite of that wisdom. It's it's the image of of, of wisdom. It's the opposite of wisdom as as a life that's lived in light of who God is, in light of what God has said in these areas that, that God hasn't spoken to. Foolishness is making choices that treat God like he's not a factor. That, that choose what seems right to, to, to me rather than trying to carefully weigh the, the things that God has told me and apply them to the things he hasn't. Foolishness in the Bible is, an, is the image for a life that's just off the rails through carelessness or thoughtlessness or rash decisions. And this one here, I think, is a fool who who feels like his life is not recoverable. It's gone too far. He's he's in too deep. Drawing near to the gates of death. Verse 19 echoes the same theme we've been hearing. Here's a fool trapped in a web of his own making with no move left but to cry out to the Lord. And he delivered him from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them. He delivered them from their destruction. I love the way he describes this, sending out his word and healing them. This is exactly what they need. What the fool lacks is, is, is wisdom. He lacks an insight into what's best. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know how to break free of the things that he's brought on himself through bad choices. And God's response is not just to heal the wounds, but to give him the guidance that he lacks. To send out his word so he knows where to go. He knows which, which way to aim his life. I wonder, are you trapped this morning in a web of choices that you've made? 
Are you facing a mountain of consequences that you feel like you can't summit? If you are, I don't want to minimize uh, the, the scale of what you might be facing. The Bible is never unrealistic. It, actions do have consequences. And yours maybe have buried you so deep that you don't know how to climb out. And the things that seem so easy for other people may seem crippling or impossible for you. And because you know it's your fault, because you know you got here by bad choices, you may be so embarrassed so ashamed to talk about it that you don't know where to turn. If that's where you are, then what you need to hear from this psalm is that this is not the end of your story. It is not up to you to make things right. You cry out to God and He will deliver you. The Bible has no reason to cheapen the scale of what you're facing. It has no reason to chop it down to size. The bigger the mountain you're facing because of bad choices, then the more glory God gets when he lifts you over it. Nobody here is trying to tell you it's not as bad as you think it is. It might be as bad as you think it is and worse. The message of this psalm is that you cry out to God from where you are. He will hear you and he will deliver you. One of the tools that he uses most often to help people who cry out to him, especially when it's about choices in life and not knowing which way to go, is the community that God has put around you. You don't have to buy your way back onto the rails in life. God has put people around you right now who can help you. I'd start, with, start there. Who do you know here in your community now that you can trust with the scale of what you're facing? Who can you tell? Give God a chance to deliver you through them. You may be surprised by what they can give you. Maybe you already know that. Has God delivered you from foolish choices you've made? Well, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Wisdom comes through community. Proverbs makes that clear. If you're sitting on the backside of God's deliverance of you from foolishness that, 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 that you had stumbled into or chosen willfully or however you found yourself there, if that's where you are this morning, then there are people... Trapped in the consequences of decisions they've made in their life right now in this room who need your help. One of the best ways to find wisdom is experience. And sometimes what you need when you don't have experience of your own is experience of somebody else. So help us build a community of lessons learned the hard way. Of people who, who don't look down on others or feel personally above the mistakes that other people have made. Join the chorus that this psalm lays out for us. Thanking God and telling other people what he's done. Verse 22, let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds and songs of joy. That's your calling. There's hope for the foolish, including you. One more category. There's hope for the overwhelmed. This comes out starting in verse 23. Some wandered in desert wastes. Some sat prisoners in affliction and irons. Some were fools through their sinful ways. And some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. When I first read that, I thought, you know, one of these things is not like the others. That doesn't seem to fit the pattern. I mean, we know Israel's exile didn't involve... 
sailing. It's not like they were galley slaves on ships rowing, like in, in Ben-Hur or something. It wasn't like that. So, so where does this image come from? I think it's just another pointer that this psalm is not just about telling facts from history. It's meant to describe in different ways what it feels like to be in a distress so deep, so great, that you have no hope. And what it looks like when you cry out to God from that place. So here, what's the, what's the image that comes out in this one? It's the image of people who are overwhelmed by the, by the challenges that they face in life. Here, let me show you how I'm getting that. Verse 24, they saw the deeds of the Lord and his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. I think verse 27 is the key to to what we're supposed to take from this. These are people who were brought to their wit's end. Literally, they were brought to the end of themselves. They were brought to the end of their skills. So think of the before in this image as people who knew what they were doing on an open sea. They they knew how to turn the water to their advantage. They knew how to catch the wind just the right way with their sails. They knew how to di- how to direct their ships in, in in the proper directions to end up where they wanted to go. They were the experts. So if you've got if you've got this image for fools as people whose life feel like they've gone off the rails, here, this image starts out with people who, 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 for whom everything is, is working according to plan. They've trained. They've got the right skills. And, and it's great. But sometimes even people who are nailing it at life need to be reminded how small they actually are. How subject they are to forces they will never control. Out on the sea, these guys are on their turf. The sea is to them what the OR is to a surgeon or the mound to a pitcher. It's their resource. They're in control. They set the agenda. And everything's going according to plan until God commanded. And the wind jumped to attention. And all of a sudden these these confident and experienced sailors find themselves mounting up to the heavens. Think of waves, is what he's describing. And crashing down into the depths. And rather than steering just on course or working the sails to catch the wind just right, they're just trying to keep their sea legs. They're staggering around like drunken men, trying not to go overboard. This is the image of the person who's overwhelmed by what life has brought them. Whose every skill is now useless. The person who's gone from being in complete command of their life to being totally overmatched by it. And verse 29 tells us what they learned. Verse 28 says, They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm to be still. They couldn't control it, He could. And the waves of the sea had cast them up to heaven and then crashed them down into the depths. They were still, hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet. And he brought them to their desired haven. Are you overwhelmed by your life? You're facing forces that you can't control. 
If you are, it might be especially frustrating to you to be where you are because you can remember a time when your life didn't feel that way. You can remember a time when you felt in control and good at life, where you woke up in the morning knowing what was expected of you and knowing that you had what was needed to do what was expected. You ever felt like that? I have a few memories like that, at least. It was a long time ago, maybe elementary school, actually. <laughs> Learning the multiplication table. Maybe you remember what it felt like to be on it. You had confidence. And you woke up happy for what the day was going to bring you because you were going to nail it. If you ever felt like that, felt in control of your life, if you're that kind of person who's driven and successful and now feel overwhelmed, then what feels like a curse is actually a precious gift. God has overwhelmed you so that you won't trust in yourself but in Him. So that you will actually cry out to Him and give him a chance to deliver you. I want you to think about what's overwhelming you. As I, I don't know what it is. I don't, I don't pretend to know what's going on there. What all is behind it. I just want to invite you to think. To ask questions and to pray. To think about the fact that. It could be. That God has raised this wind in your life. This storm. These waves. To bring you to your wits end. And to show you that you can trust him. And that he's done this, friends, because he loves you. Have you been delivered? Was there a time when you didn't know which way to turn? You had no next step that you could manage? And God heard you and brought you through? Then let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Praise him in the congregation. Verse 32. Praise him in the congregation of the people and the assembly of the elders. Let people hear it. Thank him in your heart, but also in your words. Because you know what? You've got friends who are overwhelmed. And they need to know that God saves. They don't need you to say that you've been exactly where they are. Because you probably haven't. Don't tell them it's not as bad as it seems. Because it might be. They don't need for you to chop down the size of what they're dealing with to make it more manageable for God. What they need, what they need is for you to tell them what you have known from God's hand. That you were overwhelmed and God delivered you. There is hope for the wanderer, for the captive, for the foolish. For the overwhelmed, there is hope for anyone who cries out to God in their distress. And the last few verses of this psalm are merely meant to remind us that there is hope for the hopeless. The last few verses just draw some conclusions to make sure you got the point from the four examples. I want to read them to you and and close here. here. Here is the psalmist bringing things back around to a head to make the exact same point he's already made four different ways in case you missed it. In case you got distracted by the examples themselves, here's what you need to know about God and who you're dealing with. Verse 33, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into a thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because of the evil of his inhabitants. He turns the desert into pools of water, 
a parched land into springs of water. And there he lets the hungry dwell and they establish a city to live in. And they sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing they multiply greatly. And he does not let their livestock diminish. That's an ancient world way of saying God just turns the tables. God is in the business of reversals. He takes what is and turns it into what isn't. He is just. He takes what isn't and he turns it into what is. He is merciful. Same thing comes out next. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours out contempt on princes, on the ones who oppress, and makes them wander in trackless ways. The ones who thought they were strong enough to just have their way with those who couldn't resist them, he turns them out to pasture. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. So whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. These verses are just here to make sure we get the point. God loves reversals. He loves the unexpected plot twist. He confounds expectations. That's just who he is, is what he does. And what this, what this section of verses is meant to help us see from all that was already said is that God not just, it's not just that he loves reversals. It's that his reversals always favor the hopeless. His reversals don't favor the self-assured or the powerful. His reversals favor those who are desperate enough to cry out to him. And what this psalm reminds us in its final verse is that his reversals come from one source. The steadfast love of the Lord and nothing more. All these reversals this psalm celebrates... All that Israel has experienced in its wanderings in the wilderness and its coming into the promised land and its exile and in its return, all of it, all of God's confounding of expectations was really just pointing to the greatest reversal of all. The message of the gospel is that Jesus, Jesus is the God who made all things. That he existed forever with his Father. That he enjoyed glory that none of us will ever be able to experience for ourselves. Uniquely his by right. That he enjoyed fellowship with his Father throughout all of eternity. That he knew and embraced his place in the world. but that he chose willingly to give up his home to provide a home for you in your wandering. That he willingly gave himself over to, to chains, to bondage, so that he could shatter your bonds and set the captives free. That he was mocked as a fool and a fraud 
so that he could lead you like a shepherd from your foolishness and into his wisdom. That he gave himself over to forces he created. That he subjected himself to their power completely. To the power of hands he created that held swords to wound him and nails to pierce him. That he let himself be bound and crucified and literally overwhelmed by the wrath of God for sin. That he experienced this so that he could offer hope to otherwise hopeless people like us. Friends, Jesus was driven out of the world that he made. And he did that so that he could build a city for us to dwell in. When the Bible pictures what's coming, what Jesus has won by his death and resurrection, it pictures a city, a home, a place to be known and loved and provided for forever. And that is his promise to wanderers and captives, to fools and people who can't live life on their own terms. He promises us identity and belonging through the greatest reversal of all. Because he was really dead. He died a death in a true body as true and real as mine or yours. But from that tomb, God has exalted him. And he has set him above every other power. And at his name, one day, friends, at his name, every knee is going to bow. In heaven, on earth, or under the earth. And he will bring in, gather in for himself a people. For his own possession. From the north and the south, from the east and the west, from every tribe and tongue. And in that great congregation, with him as its center, we will tell of the deeds of the Lord. The redeemed will say so forever. Father, would you please protect us for that day? Would you please hold us? by your power, through your love. Until the day when the city you have built and prepared for us becomes our home. I pray that hopeless people this morning would find hope in this song. In Jesus' name, amen.